Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, a conversation with comedian, actor, producer Jamie Kennedy. Also, journalist Justin Ling, who has an in-depth look at Canada's opioid crisis and why politicians are so averse to meaningful solutions. Plus, Canada Action's Cody Battersill and standing up for Canada's natural resources. Our next guest, veteran comedian, actor, producer, screenwriter as well. Known from the Scream franchise. Was the Jamie Kennedy experiment, which aired for a couple of years on the WB, was a huge sensation. Uh, that, of course, spawned the film Malibu's Most Wanted. Might remember that. Uh, Jimmy Kennedy is in the movie Trick, which comes out next month. Well, I guess next month is is uh, tomorrow, technically. It comes out in October. It's got a new comedy special as well. Uh, so he's a busy guy. And he is going to be here in Calgary just over a week from now. So October 10th, 11th, and 12th. That's Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, an exclusive concert event at the Laugh Shop at the Hotel Blackfoot. Much more, by the way, jimmykennedy.com, but ticket show information as well at laughshopcalgary.com. Uh, but he's taking a break where he's actually shooting a movie this week to join us on the line here this afternoon. Jamie Kennedy, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for making some time for us here. Dude, thank you for having me, Rob. How are you? I'm doing real good. Uh, you're a busy guy these days, aren't you? I'm actually calling you from a movie set. Yeah. Yeah. So your life is good. I can't complain. Yeah, no kidding. So you're doing you're doing these stand you're doing your stand up tour at the same time you're you're doing this movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, you do the movie on during the week and the tour during the weekend. Wow. Uh, let's talk about what you got a movie coming out. I believe it's coming out next month, uh, just in time for Halloween. Uh, kind of a, a bit of a scream reunion too. Tell us about this this movie trick you got coming up. The movie is called Trick, and it's uh, directed by Patrick Lussor, who was the editor of all the screens. He wrote Terminator Salvation. He's written multiple movies, and he directed it. And uh, it's a new kind of horror, I think, to be a horror genre franchise, and um, stars Omar Epps, and um, it has Tom Atkins and a bunch of horror iconic people in it. I have a nice little role. And it's really a great, you know, I mean, for people that love horror, I think we might have had something. Yeah. Sorry for that noise. No, that's okay. Yeah, it looks pretty fascinating. So it's coming out. What's the release date? October 18th. October 18th. Um, it's going to come out in select cities, and then um, it'll be on demand, and then I think streaming. There's a movie out right now. Can I ask you about this? I know you just uploaded a podcast talking about this this whole situation because you were in this movie Ad Astra with Brad Pitt, and then, yeah. as it turned out, then you weren't. What what happened yeah. with that? 
Um, I did the, the movie. I got to shot a, a, a few days on it. It was so great to be a part of it. And um, it was, uh, you know, with Brad. And then, uh, I, you know, the process of editing and different things as the movie goes. I haven't seen it yet, but my character got cut. Wow. Um, a, thank you for letting me for know that you went to the saw the podcast. And B, yeah, I mean, it's it's... I said it in the podcast because it's like a tough, that's a tough one to get cut out of because I'm so excited about it, you know, and the movie looks amazing. And, um, you know, because that one's just going to be one for the ages. Yeah. But it happens. It's, sometimes your character doesn't fit into the story or, you know, it's too long or whatever. Yeah, that's the thing. And, and you, you know, and you, you do get pretty personal in talking about it. I mean, you, you've had a very long and successful career, but, you know, there, there are still ups and downs. I mean, it can, be, it can be a cruel business at times, can it? Oh, yeah. I don't think any of us are safe. I mean, you know, you can make some good money and then, you know, if things go sour, hopefully you've saved it. But, you know, there's very few that go all the way from the beginning to the end with not many blemishes. Um, that's part of the business and I'm yeah. seeing that for everybody. There's very, there are a few that just keep going, but I've, I've been going since about 1993 and, you know, I've had some hot, some downs, some colds, you know, so it's like, but I, I'm, uh, you know, I, I think it's just that you, you love what you do. Um, it's, that's the win, right? Like yeah. I do love what I do. I'm lucky I do what I love. Well, you do a lot of things, right? And, and you know, in, in the years, uh, over the years, as you're making movies and making TV shows, I mean, have you always kept doing stand-up? Has, has that always been crucial and, and central to you? Uh, I started out as a stand-up, got busy as an actor, was known primarily as an actor, and then got had a name. And so what I did was, you know, people started offering me like little stand-up spots because they knew I did it, but I only had like 12 or 15 minutes. And then I started opening for better stand-ups. And then from there, I um, built out my hour and then, you know, I got better at it. But I, I just never gave it up because, I don't know, I can sit on a set, I can do a 12-hour day, but I just have a lot of energy. And I just felt like it was another outlet which I needed to express myself and that's where the Jamie Kennedy experiment came out of. It came out of stand-up, yeah. you know, characters that I created on stage, and that was a whole other thing. So I, I don't know, man. I can't stop. I'm like a Gemini brain, you know? <laughs> it's interesting. It's been 15 years since the last episode of the Jamie Kennedy experiment aired. Um, but, I mean, people still talk about that show, right? It, it, it was almost, I don't know, was it before its time in a lot of ways? It, it certainly made its mark, didn't it? It made its mark, and it, it it was a little premature. That's my whole life. I'm always a little <laughs> bit premature. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it did. Like, it just came right before viral. things were viral, you know, and um, it, it. but people love it, you know. But uh, I'm questioning what you could do on it today because people are so polarized. So certain characters I would do, they might be mad now, you know what I mean? But, you <laughs> sure, know, yeah. but love it, love it, you know? That's the thing. I think it was your tour last year. You called it the, the Can I Say That Tour. I, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's a great time for comedy, but I don't know. I mean, are people are people afraid of, of offending the, the wrong group? Is is there a reluctance, you think, from, from some? Oh, God, yeah. There was an article today in the New York Times with Bill Mayer. There was another article a couple of days ago in the New Republic 
There was an article last week about Dave Chappelle, yeah. uh, and it, 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 I've been mentioned in the articles. Everybody, it's, it's look, I've been thinking about it, and, and it's it's a great time for comedy. It's never been bigger. I don't know if it's ever been more talked about. It is polarizing, but look, people are rising up and they're saying, "Hey, man, you can't do these jokes." Well, we're saying that well, congratulations. Everybody should have the right. Everyone should have the same human rights. Okay, of course. Of course. Mm -hmm. But not to be, we should have the right to joke about it. Right? Like, I do agree there's something called punching down and hacky and all of that. Right. You do have to come up with new ideas and, and premises. But everything's still, we're just saying that comedians want the right to joke about everything. That's yeah. the biggest fight. Is is, is 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 do whatever you want, but we want to be able to joke about it. And there seems like there's a rising up of certain things that is that it's not cool or okay to joke about certain people or topics. And that's just like that's how you. I don't know. I mean, I guess if some have been some have been joked about too much, I get it. Easy joke, I get it. Yeah. I get it. But the ability to just joke about it, you're going to take that away. I mean. So that means it's only going to be joke about white dudes in their forties. Well, yeah, and that's just it, right? And and look, ultimately, you know, you, you got to be funny, and and people just yeah. want to go laugh, and and you know, if we're laughing about things that make us uncomfortable, or it's forcing us to think about things that that we'd rather not think about, I, I think there's value in that, isn't there? I think so. I think that if anyone's scared to talk about something, you have to look at why they're scared about it. I also think people crowing the loudest up their soapbox have something to. Gee, it's always the, it's always the teacher or the or the creepy priest, right? That's always railing against something and ends up being something else, right? So it's like, come on, man, you have to be able to talk about everything openly, and like you know, it's obviously you don't want to punch down. I do agree with that. But, you know, you have to understand that comedy place is a joke place. It's not a restaurant or a supermarket. It's where people go to hear things they normally wouldn't hear. Right. Because, I mean, you're not looking to hurt people. You're not make, looking to make people no. feel bad, right? It's, that's not what it's about. Not at all. Not at all. So, like, let's poke fun at this. Let's poke fun at that. But, listen, it's a, it's a polarizing time, sir. It is a polarizing time. It's not, it's not a bad time. It's a great time. You mm -hmm. know, people who love you can find you more readily available than ever before, yeah. and they can come out and see you. And if they don't, they can avoid you. It just seems like there's a lot of people that don't like people that actively want to tell them they don't like them, as opposed to just saying, all right, I don't like that person. I'm going to like this person. Right. Yeah, and, and maybe that's the downside. But as you say, I mean, you know, you obviously the, the comedy club scene is thriving. You got, uh, you know, you got a comedy special out. There's a lot of avenues for that. The podcast, as you say, I mean, it's it's a different kind of era right now. But there's there's so much positive when it comes to comedy and and different avenues. I think. I mean, that that's the that's the takeaway, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, it's the only the only things we have is like. You know, don't you feel better going through your day and laughing? Like, what? Well, exactly, yes. <laughs> exactly, I do. So it's like, look, find the people that make you laugh and follow them. And the people that don't make you laugh, don't follow them. Yeah. I think I, what I'm saying is there's a lot of people that are out there actively finding people that they don't like 
and going up to them and saying, I don't like you. Right. And you know what? Not, not only do I not like you, you shouldn't talk. Not only shouldn't you talk, I'm going to have you banned for talking. As opposed to, hey, I just don't like you. Ignore. Exactly. There's something about the ignore button that's not being worked on. Yeah, I think that's what's missing. Uh, JamieKennedy.com is the website. Much more there. Uh, LaughShopCalgary.com for show information and tickets. As mentioned, October 10th, 11th, and 12th. Uh, you'll be performing here. Looking forward to it. Jamie, I'll let you get back to, to making some movies. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. I love the Calgary uh, Laugh Stop. So it's been a minute. So please, guys, come on out if you want to have some fun. There you go. Jimmy Kennedy, uh, comedian, actor, writer, producer. Uh, so it's next week, October 10th, 11th, and 12th. LaughShopCalgary.com, much more as well at JamieKennedy.com. Yeah, and it's funny. I mean, he mentions the idea of the ignore button. There was a great line from uh, Ricky Gervais, a uh, recent uh, uh, comedy special he did. Where, you know, he, he sort of takes, like, Twitter and social media and uses, like, the analogy of, like, the town square, right? Where, you know, everyone's got a chance to come out and have their say and put things up on the bulletin board. And there's all these different ideas and perspectives out there. But the way people react today, it's like it would be like going up and seeing that someone has posted something on the billboard for guitar lessons. You don't want guitar lessons, you can ignore that. But as he says, you know, what we have today is where it's not just enough to ignore the guitar lesson. You got to take that number, phone the person and tell them that you don't want guitar lessons. And you're so upset that you saw this because you don't want guitar lessons. Hey, if you don't want guitar lessons, <laughs> ignore the sign. Uh, if you don't like uh, a comedian, don't go see that comedian. Or like if we, were talk, uh, we talked about earlier, if you don't like Dave Rubin, or you don't like Maxine Bernier. Don't go see their event in Hamilton. Report came out uh, late last week. A provincial report looking at the opioid crisis that fentanyl is responsible for the highest percentage of lives lost to this crisis. In the first quarter of 2019, 89% of all opioid-related deaths were due to fentanyl. 11% related to non-fentanyl opioids. But since 2016, January 1st, 2016, since then, 2,358 people have died in Alberta uh, from opioid overdose. That that is a staggering number. And that is just one province out of 10 in this country. This is a national crisis. And are we doing enough? Are we doing the right thing to address it? Now, it, it has come up on the campaign trail to some extent. It was interesting, Green Party leader Elizabeth May actually talked about decriminalization, which is something a lot of health experts have pushed for, but took a really weird approach to it by saying that she would decriminalize drug possession and then reverse it once the overdose crisis subsides. But how much does decriminalization need to be a part of our overall approach to this? I mean, it seems that we're still having disagreements and debates around harm reduction. Decriminalization, I think, is is even more controversial. Well, there's a fascinating deep dive into all of this uh, this week at uh, foreignpolicy.com. Freelance journalist Justin Ling has been spending months working on this and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Justin, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome to the program. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, yeah, as I say, you've been working on this for a long time, and, and I guess at the same time as well, and, and as you've been covering the election campaign, you've been trying to ask the, the leaders about this. 
Yeah, that's right. So, and this is something I've, I, I followed for years. Uh, I, I worked at Vice for a number of years where we made a point of bringing on the prime minister uh, and putting to him some of the questions around the opioid crisis or what his government has been doing. Uh, even going back to the last campaign, we were um, you know, making a point to try to get the campaigns to talk about these issues. Um, but over the last four years, you know, there has been a frustration. It feels like uh, for all the talk and for all of the uh, professing to believe this is a crisis, um, not enough has been done. You know, 12,000 people are dead in this country uh, just over about a year, uh, a several year period, um, mostly due to fentanyl. And it doesn't feel like um, this is actually being treated as a crisis. And unfortunately, in this campaign thus far, uh, despite the good work of some journalists and certain media outlets, this this issue has not been on the front burner. Campaigns simply haven't been addressing it. Um, they've sort of perfected to care, uh, but when push comes to shove, the, the actual policies on the table, at least from the two front runners, um, just are not adequate. So, you know, I, I went to Vancouver a couple of months ago to meet with some harm reduction advocates, um, some drug user groups, and some researchers and academics who are really familiar with this problem, and, and I kind of sort of took what I learned in those meetings and, and put them to both Justin Trudeau and Andrew Scheer to see what what the reaction would be. Uh, and how would you describe that reaction? Bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can use some other words, but that's the main one. Yeah. Um, so, you know, first I asked Andrew Shear when he was in Montreal uh, late last week, um, and I, you know, I said, you know, you are opposed not just a decriminalization of drugs, you know, which we can talk about, but you've actually opposed um, safe injection sites and opioid replacement therapy. You actually want to do more to criminalize the use of certain opioids, which is exactly contrary to what everyone's saying. You know, how can you justify that? And his rhetoric was, was not dissimilar to that of the Harper government you know, five years ago, uh, or you know, even going back further than that. It was, uh, we need to respect communities. Communities need a voice. And, and that is really you know, coded language for um, people who don't want this sort of thing in their backyard need to have a larger say. And that is a, a, a surefire way to make sure that uh, the most effective strategies for stopping deaths won't be able to go forward or expand. You know, that's exactly what the Harper government did. Even after the Supreme Court told the Harper government that uh, safe injection sites were not just useful but necessary, the Harper government professed to care about the opinions of uh, homeowners and local residents um, and used those excuses to stop building and opening new sites. So that was frustrating. But, you know, if you thought that the prime minister was being more enlightened, you know, it's not necessarily the case. Yes, the prime minister uh, is in favor of safe injections and safe consumption sites, um, but he hasn't moved much beyond that. You know, right. the government has done little bits around uh, improving access to safe supply of opioids, and opioid replacement therapy, but those measures have only helped a couple hundred people in this country overall. Right. And it seems in any kind of a, of a health crisis, a different kind of health crisis, we would be listening to the medical experts. We'd be listening to the people on the right. front line. Um, but this, because it involves criminal law, it involves, I think, even to some people, morality, it, it just it, it becomes a completely different conversation. And, and I think it prevents us from from really tackling the problem. That's right, and you know, that's exactly what the question I put to the Prime Minister. You know, I, I said, and I've spoken to Jane Philpott, the former health minister. She said that when this issue came up around the table, there were ministers advocating for uh, the end of criminalization of personal possession of drugs, like Portugal and other countries have done. Uh, the Prime Minister's response was pretty simple. He basically said the polling numbers aren't there. You know, the, the public that won't won't 
love this, and therefore I'm not going to entertain it. Um, and, and that's what I put to him on Friday. Uh, and you know, he said simply, this is what our government's doing. If you don't like it, you can have Andrew Scheer, uh, which is not adequate. It's not enough. That's, that's a horrible response. It, it is a response that feels very tone-deaf to the 12,000 people that are dead and the thousands more that will die if not more is being done. Um, something like 1,300 people have already died early in the first three months of this year. Uh, those numbers will continue tracking upwards until, frankly, the user uh, base in this country is dead. Um, so it is frustrating to watch the leaders of the two major parties sort of um, you know, try and play politics with this when the researchers are saying very point blank, the only way we can start making more progress in terms of reducing the number of deaths is to end the criminalization of possession. Now, you know, people, I think, are taken aback by that idea, but it, it's not all that radical. I mean, you know, we don't see better public safety outcomes by arresting or harassing drug users. No. Certainly the gangs and the importers still need to be gone after. We cannot have criminal gangs importing heroin or, or fentanyl from, from China or wherever else. Um, but, you know, that's not what's at play here. What's at play here are the users who are buying heroin, say, and who are having fentanyl snuck into that supply and who are dying because of it. The only way to address that is to make sure that they're comfortable um, going to a safe consumption site or working within the confines of the law to get a safe supply of the drug they want to use or an analogous drug that is more easily managed. And it's very hard to do that as long as you're criminalizing the simple act of possessing those drugs. Right. And so th- so that's why there, there seems to be, as you describe it in your piece, a, a consensus emerging around all of this because of the obstacle that it poses to people accessing the healthcare system. That's right, and that's why you've seen public health officials from BC and Ontario actually come out and say decriminalization needs to happen. You know, these are not fringe people; these are you know the, the, the public health officials um, in, in in certain municipalities and the province of British Columbia are saying this. You know, this is not out there. Portugal decriminalized possession of all drugs in the early 2000s. Over that time, they've not only seen a reduction in the number of deaths, overdoses, and HIV transmissions, they've also seen a reduction in drug use. People are more comfortable going to counseling services and seeking help when they're not worried about criminal law. When you remove the penalties and the stigma around drug use, people are more likely to seek help. Um, you know, the, the research there is not ironclad. I mean, I, you know, I don't think anyone's saying we need to go full-sale legalization and start selling heroin at a corner stores. Obviously not. But there are ways in doing this in a measured, thoughtful way, or at the very least begin researching how we can do it that will save people's lives. Yeah. It's interesting, and, and you look at, at another strategy that, that, I mean, we do to some extent, but um, it, the idea of opioid agonist therapy uh, and, and how that can be effective, what, what, what is the status in Canada of our approach to that? Right. So opioid agonist therapy sounds a little bit uh, foreign, but it is in essence getting people who use illicit drugs onto a replacement that is similar to the drug they're using. Like so me- methadone. Methadone. Yeah. methadone is the one that everyone thinks of. Mm-hmm. Methadone is not a perfect solution. Methadone itself is a very rough drug. Um, it has been poorly managed and poorly maintained. But generally speaking, people who use methadone uh, have been able to quit heroin um, the, the statistics of whether or not they go back to using it are, are a little bit muddy, but, but methadone has been pretty good thus far. There are other drugs that are coming onto the scene that are much more effective than methadone 
that are much more well-tolerated, that are preferred. The problem is that that has only been accessed by you know, maybe a thousand people across the country. The drug user base is the orders of magnitude larger than that. Um, and the simple reality is the federal government has sort of uh, been very slow to actually open that up. Um, there's other compounding problems. The reality is that some people don't want to go to a doctor and get a prescription for a replacement opioid and then go to a pharmacy every day to take it. Uh, the federal government is talking about removing some of that red tape and letting uh, the door open a bit wider, but the reality is a subset of the user population are, will only, uh, only a subset will ever actually entertain this as a, as a viable alternative. Many people want to do the drugs they want to do, and they're going to do it uh, in their apartments or maybe in a safe consumption site, or maybe with some friends, and they'll never entertain going to a doctor to get a replacement. So this is only part of the solution, and this is part of the problem. The federal government has really put a lot of eggs in that basket, but it's only ever going to help a small section of the overall population. You need to talk about the supply problem. And if you don't do that, people are going to keep dying. Now, you know, the one, the one solution that uh, some drug users in Vancouver have come up with is that they're going to buy their own drugs. They're going to get a little buyer's cooperative together, a compassion club of sorts, and find a supply that they can trust. They're going to, you know, pull their money and buy it from that, you know, week in and week out, and they're going to distribute it amongst themselves. That sort of solution is very effective. You know, it goes without saying that if you buy uh, from a single supplier and you know the quality, you can you can predict how it's going to affect you. You can predict the potency, and you, the, the chance of you overdosing are significantly lower. But that's exactly the sort of thing that is intensely criminalized. That sort of plan is drug trafficking. You know, as right. long if they ever get caught doing that, they're facing stiff penalties, potentially mandatory minimums, uh, and jail time. And, and that's exactly the problem. The criminal law is forbidding people who are going to do drugs, whether you like it or not, from accessing the most safe and reliable supply possible. Pieces up at foreignpolicy.com. I urge people to read it. Uh, Justin Ling, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks. All right. That's Justin Link, freelance journalist, uh, author of this piece, uh, a lengthy look uh, inside the drug crisis. The headline, Canada's drug crisis has a solution. Politicians don't like it up at foreignpolicy.com. So it seems, you know, the question of whether energy uh, is, has been a focus in this campaign, that's in terms of, well, certainly the NDP and the Greens talking about how uh, they want to shut it all down. Uh, I guess that's been there. But have we seen a real conversation about supporting uh, our energy sector and talking about policies to, to support our energy sector. Look, I get that climate change is an issue. It's an issue Canadians are concerned about. We certainly saw that last week. But the two don't have to be in conflict. And maybe that's part of the conversation shift that needs to occur. And maybe that's what we should be looking for from our leaders is not just talking about how to promote Canada's energy sector, but promoting Canada as a country uh, that balances responsible energy production and responsible environmental policy. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, you know what we've been seeing and hearing over the last few weeks uh, and a few other issues to get to, very pleased to welcome to the program, Cody Battersill, uh, founder of Canada Action, canadaaction.ca, facebook.com slash Canada Action. Cody, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. 
Hey, Rob, thanks so much for having me. Hey, by the way, and uh, let's talk about the t-shirts, first of all, because, of course, Canada Action does these great I Love Canadian Oil and Gas t-shirts that have obviously proven to be quite popular. We've had two controversies, or unless maybe there's been more, I don't know, but two controversies that we know of in Ottawa. People were told to take off these shirts while touring the Senate. What, what do you make of what's happened? What's been the reaction to that? I mean, the reaction has been overwhelming support from every province and all across Canada. We've seen our sales skyrocket. We've really survived over the years on these sales. And it's not just oil and gas. We have the family farm and we have even wind and a bunch of other brands. But really the message here is that we should be proud as Canadians of our natural resource sector, especially our energy sector. We are a solution. We are moving forward. We are innovating and we should be the choice supplier for the world. Energy demand is growing. That includes oil. And so um, it was a lot of uh, welcome media, to be honest. Well, it was. And, you know, and I think the reaction from people was encouraging as well. I mean, it was weird and frustrating that it happened in the first place, because uh, clearly the, it's, it's not a partisan message. It's really not a political message at all, I don't think. It's not a political message at all. And to be clear, we've had every major party in Alberta. We've had elected officials from across the country. We've had uh, labor. We've had indigenous, non-indigenous seniors and children alike, all representing and proudly wearing the brand that is I Love Canadian Natural Resources, I Love Canadian Oil and Gas. Um, It starts a conversation. It's a way to express our support for an industry that has been so beaten down and targeted by forces that would like to keep us landlocked while they are ignoring, for example, Saudi Arabian oil tankers arriving in North America on on a daily basis. And uh, it is absolutely a positive message of inclusivity, um, something that we can all uh, contribute to with the conversation, just being proud, willing to put up our hand and say, I support Canadian jobs. I support local resources made in Canada. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, it goes beyond oil and gas. It was interesting to see this event in Vancouver last week, which looked pretty familiar to events we've seen in Alberta in the past. But uh, a pretty massive turnout, a convoy in support of the forest industry and in support for Canadian resources of a different kind. Well, absolutely. And you know what? When you look at Canada's forestry sector, um, varying different types of wood products from softwood lumber to hardwood lumber to newsprint to uh, pulp, all these different forestry products, Canada's actually a major exporter leading in most of these uh, product categories uh, around the world in, in what we produce and what we export. We're also a leader in the world of sustainable forestry. We have a massive uh, program of replanting. I mean, again, there's a nice tie in there with the energy sector, planting millions of trees within their land reclamation guidelines. So whether it's energy, whether it's forestry, whether it's our farmers, our pork producers, our beef producers, as Canadians, we should be supporting local families, local jobs. We know that these resources are produced under Canadian standards and Canadian guidelines, which are the best in the world. Hold our heads high and be proud. Yeah. And, and look, as we say, I mean, Canada Action is, is a nonpartisan, nonpolitical group. You, you stand for supporting our energy sector and the men and women who work in that sector. But, I mean, as, you know, in the middle of a federal election campaign, it's an opportunity to talk about uh, issues of importance. And, and I think this, this should be right up there. What, what are you looking to hear? What have you made of what you've heard so far in the conversation in this campaign around energy issues? You know, I can't comment on any specific leader. Mm-hmm. We are nonpartisan, but I can say 
But the more we talk about energy, the more we understand every facet of our life is connected to to natural resources. Everything we use, everything we do, everything we eat, everything comes from the earth. And the more we talk about Canadian leadership, you know, we saw these climate action marches. And Canada is the solution. Canada is not the problem because of our world-leading record on clean technology, renewable energy production, investment and innovation. The energy sector deserves a lot of credit that it does not get as the largest spender on clean tech and environmental protection in the country. And we need to have an honest conversation about how we are going to have the greatest impact on the global climate. And that is, as a solution, getting more Canadian oil and gas to the world, more Canadian uranium uh, for nuclear power, more Canadian hydroelectricity and wind transmission lines into the U.S. We're the world's second largest exporter of electricity. And we have the cleanest grid, uh, one of the cleanest grids in the OECD and one of the cleanest grids in the world. There's so much we're not talking about. And sometimes I, I, I fear that when we're pandering, when we're trying to get votes or we're trying to get support, from people who have said that there's nothing we could ever do, shut it all down, but they don't have a solution for how we would live the following day. That's a problem. We should be focused on the low-hanging fruit. 80% of our liquid fossil fuel imports to this country in 2018 came from countries that do not have carbon pricing initiatives. What we know about Canada is that we've been a leader in the world since 2007, still the only major supplier to the U.S. with carbon pricing initiatives. So there's just so many examples of where if we want to help help the environment, want to protect the climate, we should be exporting Canadian energy, Canadian innovation, Canadian know-how, Canadian expertise to the world. That, in- that includes carbon capture and storage, where we have 20% of the world's major operating facilities and a ton of know-how that we could be um, sending elsewhere. Yeah, and, and, and it's not just during an election campaign. I mean, the, the, these issues do get oversimplified, and I think it's unfortunate because it's not an either-or, the notion that, well, I do support the energy sector, but I'm also concerned about climate change, so I guess i got to pick one. Uh, it, it, that's, that's, it's a false choice, isn't it? It's a false choice, and we are asked by groups like Greenpeace to make this choice. This choice is devoid of even how they themselves are getting around and, and how their lives work. And uh, absolutely, there's a lot of people that are very passionate about the environment. We know mm-hmm. from recent polling, 70% of Canadians want Canadian oil. The other 30%, I hope, simply don't have all the facts to make that decision. Um, you know, because when you do look at the facts, Canada is a clear leader. We should all be supporting Canadian uh, oil and gas, Canadian energy. And, and, and it's the environment and the economy. And there's no country on earth demonstrating that better than what we've been doing in Canada. What the energy sector, what the oil and gas sector is doing every single day, the women and men that make up the sector, the investments in R&D, research, uh, reducing our impact, and now we need to get out of our own way. There is an energy race happening around the world. The U.S., they've built tens of thousands of miles of pipelines. There's Saudi oil tankers arriving in Canada. There's Canadian oil being exported through the U.S. to Asia. There's tremendous demand and, and desire for our energy. We need to now get out of our own way, put people back to work, and get the world access to the Canadian oil and gas that they want. What about demand, right? And, and you know, long term, there, there are different kind of forecasts for where, where demand is going, what it's going to look like in 10 or 20 years. But you know, certainly, what about the short-term code? Because it, it appears as though demand for fossil fuels is, is not going away anytime soon. Demand for fossil fuels is not going away anytime soon. We know that energy transitions take uh, centuries, uh, you know, a century or more. They take generations. They take mm-hmm. decades. 
Uh, Vaclav Smil is Bill Gates' favorite author, and he's a well-respected author. Uh, he's actually a professor in Winnipeg. He's very shy, but anything that he writes, um, I have all of his books, and I encourage everyone to look him up. He talks a lot about the reality of energy transitions, how long they take, the energy density of fuels. There is nothing better for energy density than oil and natural gas, oil specifically. And this conversation about oil, that we're all going to be off oil in two or three or five years, absolutely false. It is not doing the environment any service by misleading people or by having conversations that are half-baked and focused on fear. In 2040, even 2050, all of the different forecasts, including climate change assumptions and climate change action, oil is still a very important part of the mix. Fossil fuels, you know, 15, 20 years ago were 85% of the world's energy. Um, Today, it's the same. And in 25 years from now, it's projected to be about 75%. Oil still will be 27% of total energy supply in 2040. And when oil demand does peak one day, when we have the technology, Canada should be the last producer out of the pool. And when it peaks, it doesn't go to zero the next day. We're going to need oil for a long time. And quickly, just to frame this market share discussion, every year we have oil demand increasing for the foreseeable future, plus existing production stops and it depletes and 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 it falls off. So we need three to four million barrels every year of new oil just to meet uh, growing demand and replace existing supply. Canada is the best suited country to meet that demand because of our environmental record, because of our focus on protecting human rights, worker safety, equality, and, and, and our ability to export that know-how of environmental protection around the world. Yeah, well said. Much more at CanadaAction.com, uh, including those uh, T-shirts, by the way. Cody, thanks for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it, as always. Thank you so much, Rob. Thanks always for having me on. I appreciate All right. it. Take care. Cody Battersills, founder of Canada Action, CanadaAction.ca. You can find them on Facebook as well, Facebook.com slash CanadaAction. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.